Watching the city of Las Vegas become a true football city has been just such a joy. You know, having the Pro Bowl here, the draft here, Super Bowl coming up here in a couple years. So uh, the, the city of Las Vegas is incredible. The people are so fun. And, you know, we're excited to be representing Greater Nation here. Let's go! The 4 o'clock football frenzy on Cofield and Company. Company. All right, rolling into the 4 o'clock hour, the voice of A.J. Cole, the punter for the Raiders, is talking about the draft experience and Vegas becoming a football city. Willie Ramirez, Cofield, let's uh, continue breaking down the draft. We're going to be doing it for a couple of weeks. There were so many good topics, interesting uh, that fell and, and rose and all those trades and everything. So let's break it down with one of the folks from the uh, draft network. Keith Sanchez is uh, one of the head honchos there, one of the lead analysts, was a uh, an LSU guy as well, so we'll get into the SEC specifically in just a couple minutes. What's up, Keith? How are you? Man, I'm doing pretty good, man. You, y'all got me going with the uh, the intro music, man. I, I, I like that. I'm going to have to get that more on some, uh, some intros uh, All right. further on. All right, there you go, there you go. <laughs> so I just mentioned the Raiders punter, A.J. Cole. Would you advise teams to take punters in the draft, and what do you think of the punt god, Matt Ariza out of the Mountain West Conference going in the sixth round to the Bills. Yeah, so I guess I okay, I'll go ahead and address the first part. Um, I would advise teams to take punters because really um they're they're and I would say this because it, it's such an important position, especially depending on how your team is constructed, right? If you don't have a strong offense, um possibly in your you know, a defense run game and you play the field position, man, those those 15, 20-yard swings that happen throughout the game are so important. So I, I wouldn't advise and say it's of utmost importance for every team, but if if you need a punter, I would definitely try to go get one. Um, coming from LSU, um, you know, we always emphasize um, putting special teams players on scholarship, and that was because we wanted to get go get the best of the best, right? It's like you either give the kid a scholarship or he may go somewhere else because um, usually they don't give um, – you know, kickers and punters and our long snapper scholarships, but we always emphasize that because we knew how important special teams was. And it's one of those things, right, where you don't need a kicker until you need a kicker, right? And you don't need a punter until you need a punter. So I say why not be a well-rounded team and, and go get the guys that you need. And, I mean, it's it, like we say, special teams is a, is, a, is a phase of the game also. Keith, and one thing that uh, the Raiders do not need is a punter or a kicker, but – they did need some offensive linemen. They did need a little bit of help in the secondary. But what do they do? In addition to some linemen on both sides of the trenches, they grab two running backs. What does that mean for the Raiders? I I, I think it means more something for Josh Jacobs. I think it was a message, not to him personally, but you know because when he plays, he's a very productive football player, right? There's no argument that he's probably a top 10 back when he's healthy. But I think he hasn't been healthy, and, and as he – you know, go through the season and you can't rely on him. I think you've also seen the Raiders' offense kind of fluctuate. And I think that the Raiders wanted to be more dependent on him because they know he is a, a really good talent. And I think, secondly, is the head coach, right? Josh McDaniels, he comes from a, 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 a offensive scheme where the Patriots always use multiple running backs. It doesn't matter what year it is. They always have three, four running backs that they can, you know, run out on a football field, get in the huddle, and is capable of running the plays. But then also, they're multiple guys, right? Like they can do different things. So it kind of keeps the defense kind of, um, 
you know, off kilter a little bit. They aren't able to, you know, gather tendencies. Like, it's not just downhill bruising type running back. Like, it's guys that can do multiple things, can catch the ball out of the backfield, but also can run the football in between the tackles and outside the tackles, too. So, I think that was it was a combination of Josh Jacobs' injury history, but also also philosophy from the head coach. So, Keith, right after the draft, guys like me, you know, beat writers or radio guys like Steve and I, whatever, we sit here and we act like we know – whether teams did 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 something right or wrong and tried to grade them and 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 zeroing in and getting the best draft but the un, we just spoke to an undrafted free agent signing from Las Vegas Savon Scarver who ends up with the Bears how 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 just as important is it to steal the undrafted free agent market as well can you get just as good as steals there oh no definitely you definitely can and so I'll I'll kind of go through our process so I think I believe is what 256 players got drafted this year, and we scouted almost 350 players, right? So we have write-ups on almost 350 players. So that means we have a still have a, a large bucket of fifth, sixth, and round players that didn't get drafted. It's just there's not enough spots and slots, right? So if you think about it, when you know when a draft is over and you have your priority. Um, undrafted free agents, being able to go get those guys are key assets because they, they are high-caliber football players. It's just that, you know, they were right on the fringe of being draftable players, and you can exchange those players out for probably 30 or 40 other guys. So I know for sure just my history would, you know, speak with other guys in the NFL that, man, that's such a huge priority when you're talking about filling out the back end of your roster, whether that's special teams or whether, let's say, if it's an offense that likes to run five wide receivers and they didn't, they don't feel totally comfortable with the wide receivers that they have on the, um, you know, on their depth chart on their roster. But they also didn't draft those guys either, so they know. Okay, look, we have you know five guys that are left as priority undrafted free agents that are capable of making this team. So, man, for for teams, it's it's really important, and, and that process is just as important as the process going through the drafted football players. Keith Sanchez is on the horn with Cofield and Company. He's a senior NFL draft analyst with the. Draft Network. I saw that one of your favorite drafts was the Hall for the Houston Texans. Yes, yes. I, I I thought Houston did a really good job. Obviously, we know they went through a lot of turmoil, right? Like this past year with the Deshaun Watson situation, them firing their head coach after one year, and then hiring Lovey Smith would seem like, in a weird way, the exact same move. And then the whole Luke McCown bringing him in, not bringing him in, um, tra- ultimately trading Deshaun Watson. So, that team and that organization lacked the identity. Um, and I was very interested to see how did they attack the draft because I knew that Jacksonville and Detroit, most likely they were going to go defensive linemen. I knew who they had the eyes on. I knew it was Trayvon Walker and I knew it was Aiden Hutchinson. But, I mean, the Texans were a wild card, right? They could have went quarterback if they wanted to. They could have went wide receiver if they wanted to. They could have went offensive lineman if they wanted to. But they went with cornerback, which I thought was, you know, interesting, but – Filling out the rest of the draft, I think they started to build a culture, and that's what I kind of talked about in one of my articles that I, you know, that I wrote about them was if you look at the teams that they, the players that were on those teams that they drafted from, it's from winning programs, right? Like they went and got Christian Harris from Alabama, obviously Derek Stingley from LSU, um, Jalen Petrie right there from Baylor. You know, they just won a Big Twelve championship, so I, I think it was big on. Um, getting a culture going and getting our football identity. And I think they did a really good job with that. 
How risky do you think the pick of Stingley is? I heard a lot of people saying, hey, this is a boomer bus guy, especially because you know he came out like gangbusters at the beginning of his college career, you know, had some injuries. What do you think of Stingley? <laughs> um, You're objective. I, I think, I'm, I'm, I'm an interesting guy to ask that, right? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, guy, I used to coach there. Yeah. Um, and I've seen this guy and probably known him since he was 15, 16 years old. Okay. So, man, my, my personal opinion of it is that, man, this, this guy's a football player at the end of the day. Um, and, and we have to make sure that we don't associate with the, um, the misfortunes of the entire LSU program and associate that with Derek Stingley. 2021, obviously, he was injured. And I mean that's to no fault of your own, right? You can't you can't really count injuries. And then 2020, um, you know, everybody said he didn't play up to his 2019 season. But I dare you to name one player on that team that did, right? I don't I don't think anybody played well um, during that 2020 season, and there were busts all over the back end of that defense. So man, I, I you just have to kind of grade the film for the film and look at the player for the player. I, I think that while he has an extremely high ceiling. I think he has a high floor also. Like this is a guy that comes from a system that played predominantly man to man. He's he's guarded. You think about this in practice every day. This guy has guarded Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson, and Terrence Marshall, who is also a second round pick. So he he's he's running the gamut as an eighteen year old kid. So there's not much more in the NFL that he will see that he won't have seen um, at LSU. What do you think of the Raiders pick on the defensive line and Neil Farrell? We heard, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, he kind of came on late. What do you know about him? What do you think about him in that spot for the Raiders? Yeah, so Neil Neil is a guy that'll do really good on twists and stunts. So if you like to get, you know, backfield penetration, third downs, getting a pass rush, um, I think that is right up his alley, right? Because he's shown that he's a a pretty athletic guy. He's nimble. He's a fluid mover. Um, He can really get penetration. Um, and then I also talk about the next pick, Matthew Butler. I really like this guy, right? I think this guy is strong at the point of attack. If you're looking for somebody to stop the run, um, this is your guy. But he also has some pass rush upside, too. So I thought it was interesting that those guys, I believe they went in back-to-back picks because they're almost exact opposites of each other, but they complement each other, right? So it's just a matter of when you're subbing one out and putting the other one in. But just to get that combination of back-to-back, one guy's predominantly a pass rush, in, interior defensive lineman, and then one guy to stop the run, um, I, I think it was a good combination. And just the Raiders being able to address needs without a first and second round pick. When I went back and, you know, after the draft was over, because obviously we had our live draft show, we had to kind of go back and take everything, you know, into in context and, you know, just see every team's draft and hold. And to understand, like I said, the Raiders didn't have a first round, second round draft pick. But when you look at getting Dylan Parham in a third round to address your interior offensive line position, I thought that was a really good pick. Um, you know, just surprised that he was even still there. And you've seen teams like the Patriots reach on an interior offensive lineman. But I think the Raiders did a really good job of staying patient, staying put, and being able to not only get a good football player, but address a need. And then I'll talk about Zamir White also because I'm extremely high on this guy. I think as a pure, natural running back with the football in his hands, Zamir White is probably a top three to four back in his class. Obviously, he suffers some you know knee injuries, but if, if this is another guy that can stay healthy, man, he he's an ex- extreme, superb athlete. He was the number one running back when he came out of high school, so that lets you know that he was athletically superior than a lot of people, right? But it's just a matter of him staying healthy. Man, this, this dude is a hell of a football player. Talking to Keith Sanchez, senior NFL draft analyst with the Draft Network, part of the 2019 National Championship LSU staff. 
Keith, so uh, I saw your tweet yesterday. You don't think Malik Willis needs a mentor. Nobody needs Tannehill. Are any of the quarterbacks <laughs> drafted going to turn out to be anything, though? Man, I would say this, and we just talked about this on a call. I, I thought it was I, – and I brought the point up that maybe this class, and it's about to sound off the wall, but understand what I'm saying. Maybe this class was underrated a little bit because – when is the last time we only seen like one quarterback going the first round and then the rest of these guys drop, you know, just so far? I believe Sam Howell went in the fifth round. And you're talking about a two-year starter at North Carolina. You're talking about Desmond Ritter, who's won, you know, so many games at Cincinnati. Malik Willis, if you liken him and compare him to Jalen Hurts, which he's very similar as far as having arm talent, as mobile, can move around and make some plays. Obviously, you would like his processing skills to be a little bit better, but – He's not far off of being Jalen Hurts, and Jalen Hurts, Hurts was drafted in the second round, right? So it was weird, and I wonder if the NFL, was that a blip on the radar that they're going to let these quarterbacks fall if they're not good enough, or was that just the new trend now? Because if you think back in the past, we had guys like Jake Locker and, um, you know, there's just so many quarterbacks we can go through like even Mitchell Trubisky like this is a one-year start like think about that parallel right like Mitchell Trubisky was a one-year start at North Carolina and I believe he went number two to the Bears then years later you have Sam Howell who's a two-year starter put up better numbers and better stats and he falls all the way to the fifth round so it was just it was weird for the quarterbacks honestly so um I think that those quarterbacks went to good positions I always say that this quarterback class needed to be able to sit a year and all of those guys went in a position where they can actually sit a year and learn the game. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are actually a couple starters out of this quarterback class that we wasn't expecting. The Twitter handle is The Draft Network. He's a senior NFL draft analyst. Keith, we appreciate it, man. That was a great spot. Really informative. Thank you so much. Oh, uh, No problem, man. Let me know if you come back on. For sure. Thanks, Keith. Keith Sanchez at Talent Code, former staffer at LSU. Uh, on the way back. Man, the theme continues. I'll just tell you, uh, the Raiders are looking to beef up a certain position. Their latest signing, very interesting. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. Hanging at the Battleborn Broadcast Center, it's Cofield and Company. A lot more NFL talk on the way. We'll get to Mentor Gate, Ryan Tannehill, dissing Malik Willis. I'm not exactly sure that's what he did, but we'll get to that with a uh, former quarterback for UNLV, our football insider on Wednesdays. That's Caleb Herring. I uh, just wanted to throw out there, the Raiders have signed a bunch of undrafted free agents. Uh, as of the beginning of the week, I think it was like 13. So they drafted Samir White out of Georgia. They drafted Britton Brown out of UCLA. Two more running backs. They turned down the fifth-year option of Josh Jacobs. They already have in the fold with a pretty good contract, Kenyon Drake. Mm. They have a lot of running backs. Today, they just signed another one. He's a smaller guy at 5'9 and about 205. Sincere McCormick, who was very good running back, very good running back for UTSA, he just signed on about 45 minutes ago. So the competition at running back, I'm not saying Josh Jacobs is going to lose his job, but... You can see the Patriot way, or as we've been calling them, Patriots West, developing here. Can you really go back and name any of the Patriots running backs and go, that guy was great, right? It has been a mishmash of four or five guys. They all get the play. 
And I think that's where the Raiders are going. I have no idea since here McCormick can make the team. When I watched him last year, I thought he was good. I didn't think he was great. Now, I watched him up close when UNLV was down in San Antonio. And UNLV, a beat-up UNLV team. Uh, that day, without Adam Plant, and I know one of their defensive tackles was down and probably out for the season at that point. McCormick went 29 carries for 89 yards and a bunch of a bunch of goal line stands by the Rebels. But this kid had a great career. I mean, he rushed for, I have to look at the total numbers, over 5,000 yards. So interesting guy to throw in the mix for the Raiders. Well, the thing that uh, Dave Ziegler and Josh McDaniels told us when they came in is that, and we asked about that, we asked about the running back room and said, hey, it's it's plain and simple. You know, the question is there. Is, is there a sta- has a statement been made? He said, not necessarily a statement to one person, but we want a full room. We want lots of bodies at every position. We want every position going into OTAs, there is competition. I really wanted to chime in and go, so including the number one, your WR1 and, and QB1, because not every position is up for, up for grabs, guys. Devontae Adams and Derek Carr, I'm sure they're locked in. But he was very emphatic that the running back room is going to be full and they're going to come and they're going to come and compete. We'll talk more about the Raiders and what they're trying to do at running back. By the way, I overshot a little bit on Cesar McCormick. Uh, Three years at UTSA, he rushed for over 4,000 yards. That's still pretty damn good. Uh, We'll also get into UNLV releasing its depth chart after the uh, spring football season as Caleb Herring is on the way. Cofield and company will be back in minutes right here on ESPN Las Vegas. Can I defend Ryan Tannehill here? Ryan Tannehill's saying, I'm not going to find my heir apparent. I'm not going to develop my heir apparent. If he wants to watch me and he wants to glean something from me, that's awesome. I'm not going to bark at him in the quarterback room, but I'm not going to share snaps with him. I will defend any pro athlete who gives that answer. Now, back to Cofield and Company at the Battleborn Broadcast Center on ESPN Las Vegas. More football talk in our football hour here on Cofield and Company. Willie Ramirez, Steve Cofield, Caleb Herring, the former UNLV quarterback, is with us, our football insider on Wednesdays. Caleb, how you doing? I am doing great, Steve. How are you doing? I'm awesome. What did you think of Ryan Tannehill and Mentorgate and then Cowherd having his back? I think Ryan Tannehill was honest. I think (laughs) Ryan Tannehill was right. And I think anybody who thinks he isn't doesn't understand the nature of competition. I think uh, unless you're an old geezer who has announced that this will be your final season upcoming and you plan to retire at the end of the year, there's no room to be a mentor and competition at the same time. You can't be both. Either it's a genuine 100% competition or it's not. And I think if you're the starter and there's an heir apparent, quote unquote, drafted guy to come take your spot, it is your duty and your responsibility to compete as hard as you can so that the the organization, the team knows that even if this guy is your replacement, he's better than you. Not you coached him into being good and you helped him along the way. He needs to be better than you if he's going to take your job. And the only way anybody could know if he's better than you is if you compete with him. You can't hold his hand. And give him the answers to the test and say, hey, here you go. Take my job. It'll be easy from here. No, compete. Make him earn it. And once he earns it, he's the guy. But until then, it's competition mode. And that's got to be at any level. Let me ask you this. Was Omar Clayton a mentor to you? Absolutely not. 
No. <laughs> Other than them forcing us to be roommates. <laughs> like, they forced us to be roommates on road trips. That was about the extent of our, our pleasantries. Like, we, we hung out and we shared a shower. And that was it. Like, it wasn't like, hey, here you go, buddy. Here's the playbook. Here's all the secrets that I learned and what I do to make it easy on the field and, and to be, you know, the best on it. No. It was competition, and that's the way it's supposed to be if you want a team to get better. If you want players to get better, you compete. Iron sharpens iron. It feels like I say this a lot, but I like competition, and that's the way teams get better is through competition, internal competition as well as competition with, with your opponent. you got to compete every day in the world of competitive sports. Yeah, it's funny. During the break, we're talking about uh, UNLV football and the Utah State game last year and the fact that UNLV couldn't stop. Tompkins, a wide receiver. We just talked to Savon Scarber, who had a 100-yard return in that game against the Rebels. That's a game they should have won. I didn't think Utah State was a, a great team. But what it sends us to is the large numbers of defensive backs UNLV has and will be adding through the transfer portal. Again, iron sharpens iron. So the depth chart comes out. I want to get to that in a second. We had uh, three more players from UNLV get in under that May 1st deadline to be eligible for next year and go into the transfer portal. Um, Gemini, I'll just call him Gemini, gigantic offensive guard who actually played a little tight end last year. He's in. Mm-hmm. Dondi Fuller, a linebacker, is probably mostly a special teamer. The guy I was disappointed with in seeing him go was Marcus Phillips from here in town at Cimarron. He was a walk-on. He graduated. Uh, he, you know, he tweeted at me, and he's like, hey, I want to go somewhere, try to get a scholarship and finish out the end of my career. I was surprised by that one because I really thought, even though the Rebels seemed to go you know, seven or eight deep at wide receiver, I thought he'd be one mm-hmm. of the guys, and I think they're going to use seven or eight guys. Yeah, I think they genuinely have plans to use seven or eight guys, and I think this year especially, it would seem like the emphasis will be on the passing game for UNLV, and it seems like with his age and with the, the time that he spent around the program, he had a real shot to get a lot of playing time. So that 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 is of concern when you when you're looking at it from UNLV's perspective, and then also from his perspective. If you've waited, if you played the waiting game and been here, you know through the 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 thick times and through the tough times in your career, uh, it, it would seem like you should at least you know want to try to stick it out and get your chance and finally see it come through. Um, and then again, I, the timing of all these transfers late, where you know guys are transferring out after the spring you know deadline or right at the spring deadline in this case. It just seems like they're not really setting themselves up for the best of opportunities going forward. Um, so it, it, that one would be the surprise. Of the three that you named, that one would be the most surprising to me, just looking at it at face value um, uh, uh, for what UNLV could be doing this year as far as the receivers go. You'd think the receiver room would be the most you know, needy of depth, just with the way that team, what the guys are talking about, what they want to do and what the team's going to be, what the offense looks like next year. But again, some guys maybe don't want to have the competition, don't want to compete for the spot, um, and don't want to have you know a full room of other capable receivers. They would maybe prefer to have some guaranteed playing time at maybe a lesser school and, and finish out their career. Maybe that's the objective. And we should throw in that uh, Steve Jenkins, who was the leading returner on the team, he went into the portal pretty early on in spring practice. He has landed at Southern Utah. Southern Utah. So not yes. too far away. Yes. I mean, uh, I have a, a, a familiar past with Southern Utah, so I don't like it. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the, you, you love to hear guys land somewhere, and that's yeah. good. I mean, he found the home, and he'll, he'll get the finish out of great. That's the, that's the objective, I think, with a lot of these guys entering the portal. So that's good for him. So the UNLV football depth chart is out. Any surprises for you? 
I think that the, I wouldn't call it a surprise. Um, there's a couple. I, I would have thought Cam Oliver would have made his way into the starting rotation or at least the ones on the depth chart, um, even if it was at like kind of a nickelback type of, of guy. But I think maybe that's what he ends up being anyway on the defensive side. Um, and then I also think the surprise that's not really a surprise would be the Chad Magyar at the top of the depth chart at running back. Really? Um and I think it's okay. a surprise not because I think, you know, and, and when I think about it, that's why I say it's not really a surprise because when I think of, like I said, the tone of what we've heard so far this offseason from what the offense intends to be, they want to take a lot of shots downfield. They want to be big game capable at receiver. Yep. Um, and it's going to be much more of a receiver centered offense from what we hear and from what we've been told or, or from the players and, you know, from the coaches. They, they want to be explosive. Um, so. I think Magyar of the backs listed is probably the best blocking running back. Um, but then on the same, at the same token, I think Courtney Reese as a playmaker in space gives the offense a, a dimension of playmaking that I, I don't think they've had since Lexington Thomas. So I, 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 I think it's a surprise in that regard, but then I think they just may be looking for some added help on the protection scheme with the offensive line. I think Magyar is a good fit if that's going to be the central focus of the offense. So not really a surprise. Uh, I think I, I glossed over the quarterbacks there a little bit. Cause, I mean, <laughs> well, a, the lot or people, thing a lot is... <laughs> of people saw Brumfield or Friel and then the Tennessee transfer Bailey listed at three and a lot of people got worked up. Yeah. And it, it, you know, you think about it and you say, wait a minute, this guy played games at Tennessee. Are you going to tell me that the two existing quarterbacks at UNLV, a group of five team are better than a guy who got playing time at the University of Tennessee, all you know, not the top dog in the SEC or anything like that, but they're still the University of Tennessee. It's like, are you, are you, what, what are we missing here? Is Tennessee off on their evaluation process? I think that's the initial knee-jerk reaction when you see that the guy who transferred over, who everybody was so excited from or excited about coming in, uh, not being at least the another or on the roster as we saw last year, with everybody was an or. Um, so I think that's a little bit of a shocker, but you got to keep in mind he just landed in vegas a few months ago the yep. playbook is was like he said in the interviews foreign to him and probably the the most difficult that he's had to deal with and that but these are his his own words so if that's the case you can understand how maybe the evaluation portion of the quarterback competition for him is maybe not there yet and he's not able to compete at the same level with the same kind of efficiency as the other quarterbacks who've been around the offense who have experience calling the plays and so on and so on the, the whole process of, of comprehending an offense uh, before you can act on it is uh, as big a part of the competition, especially from the quarterback angle, as anything else. So it's understandable that he maybe doesn't have, um, isn't fully, um, I guess, putting himself out there as far as being in the mix for the quarterback competition, if that depth chart is going to be a true indicator of mm -hmm. where the quarterback competition stands. Because, you know, fall could come around and Bailey could end up right at the top of that thing. So who knows? We'll see what goes on. But that was a little bit of a shock, I think, to most people that saw it. Speaking to Caleb Herring, former UNLV quarterback, UNLV analyst, part of the broadcast team, and absolutely nobody's mentor. But, Caleb, <laughs> what does it say that so many Sanchez guys are still in the ones or twos on defense? Bryce Jackson, uh, Travis Mo I can't even pronounce yeah, half these Travis guys. Travis Maliki, Sanaki Fahina, and Eliel, Ahimere, Baudry, Ajakay, they're all still around. It, it says, I think it says... it. It says that, one, we should give Tony Sanchez his flowers if we haven't already um, because he did not leave the cupboard empty, so to speak. UNLV was left in a better spot than when he started at UNLV. And that's, that's both talent-wise, facility-wise, um, the program's relevance in the community, all of it. I think 
Tony left the the program in a great spot. Um, and then it also says he did a great job recruiting. I don't know who, what the the consensus or the opinion is for him at his first head coaching job at the collegiate level, uh, coming straight from high school. There was some doubt as if he could recruit and if he could really run a program. And I think he proved by the fact that these guys are still in the ones and twos on the depth chart that he recruited talented players um, and that he left the program in a better spot. So I think that's one angle of it. Uh, then it's the other angle is the appreciation that we have to have for Coach Arroyo and his crew because they came in. And this is one of the things that I appreciated when they got hired was they came in and said, we have to recruit the guys that we already have and really know what we're working with and, you know, kind of put the pieces together that are already in the cupboard. And that's what they did. They figured out who can play, where they can play best. Um, and they, they're taking advantage of the talent that rather than saying, hey, the last guy left us with nothing and we, we have nothing to work with. We've got to go back to ground zero. It wasn't the case. They right. realized the cover wasn't empty and they're using it. Um, and then, you know, a guy that isn't even here was also a Sanchez guy. It says a lot to me about Sanchez and that regime that one of their linebackers, one of the guys they recruited, it was the best defensive <laughs> player and probably the, the most devastating transfer of all of them was yeah. Jacoby Winman, who's at Michigan State now. So, um, again, it speaks volumes to Sanchez and what he was able to do in his time here. Um, and then we got to give Arroyo his credit for developing that talent now um, and realizing it and spotting it and realizing, hey, the cover wasn't bare. I got something to work with, and he's putting the best players on the field. And I'll follow up on one more point about Winman. So, and I've told the story before, and I know you know this one, Caleb. Sanchez went down to Louisiana, was getting Travis Mumford, right, the quarterback. He was looking at him. He got him. Uh, they know about Winman, but he sees him, and he's like, okay, this guy's got some upside. As soon as Winman got here, I remember Sanchez telling us, he's like, this guy is going to be really freaking good. Winman moves on to Michigan State. Now, if you talk to a lot of the UNLV coaches and defensive players, the guy who has a chance to be the leader on defense this year is Jeray Williams. Now, if people out there are like, who the hell is Jeray Williams? Jeray Williams was making headway last year to be a leader on defense, but he ran into some eligibility issues. Jeray Williams is here because of Jacoby Winman. So look at how this is. Look at look at you know the the amazing ways that you get players. For, you know, in different ways, you know, four stars, three stars, just connections. Sometimes they're 23 years old and five years into their career. Um, it, it's pretty crazy. But yeah, you, you get that by working. You get that by working, understanding personnel, and making connections. Trickle down. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's a part of going after guys. Sometimes it's not necessarily about getting the guy that's the best guy. It's about getting the guy that connects you and gives you a network to the big fish, right? You, you, you get the fish that maybe isn't, you know, the, the apple of your eye, like you said, Sanchez going down to Louisiana for whatever the other recruit was, and then not being too prideful to say that I'm only here for this guy. Hmm. You know, UNLV doesn't have that luxury. They don't have the luxury to say I'm only going for who I'm going for, and that's it. you got to turn every stone over, so to speak, and find those guys. And then, like you said, make that network connections. How many guys have we we, we can assume or we can, we can I guess, uh, formulate the opinion that guys have come to UNLV simply because a former friend or a former teammate now is on the UNLV roster, and that makes UNLV that little bit more appealing for them to transfer in or to commit as freshmen out, coming in out of high school. It's definitely the case. I mean, look at Ricky White and Harrison Bailey. They have a connection. And if you think that didn't play a part in the recruitment process, you're out of your mind. Why wouldn't you use that? Why wouldn't you use every connection that you can to try to ensure you get talent into your program. I think UNLV's done a good job of that, whether it was Sanchez in the past or, like I said, Arroyo now with Harrison Bailey and, and with Ricky White. It, it's, it's something that you got to work with, the networking system of recruiting. It's, it's a big part of this thing.
Caleb Herring's with us. All right, let's close out going in a different direction. You're a gigantic NBA fan. What do you make of the antics and the abuse that Draymond Green received yesterday? Well, here's the thing. I mean, the fans are the fans, and we've we've seen countless times where fans maybe act inappropriately, and I think I'm going to side with Draymond in this instance where fans booing or cheering at a guy who's obviously injured leaving the field is is crossing the line as fans. And I'm, I'm going to say that um, first off. I think Draymond Green flipping them the bird, obviously be more mature about it, but understandable to, to you know, want to be the bil- villain all the time and to get that villain uh, mantra, it's hard to turn it off. And eat, when you're leaving the court, fans are going to cheer about it. There's going to be a reaction, so I get that. Um, but I think Draymond is absolutely right that, listen, fans, you're going to boo me. You're going to treat me like that. You're going to be that nasty about it, about my injury then you can't expect me to re- respond gracefully every single time. And we've seen that, you know, with other players as well, where the fans cross a line, um, that the, the players aren't afraid to let them know about it anymore. And okay. we'll see what the fine is. It's definitely going to be something, but oh, we'll see what it is. For and I was just going to ask you that. So Kyrie Irving gets fined 50K. Draymond should also get – whether we agree with the fine or not, he's got to get at least what Kyrie got. You know, it, I would say so if it was just letter of the law, do it. But I think with incidents like this, the context, I'm a context guy, the context should be at least taken into account. Every crime or every infraction is not the same. Um, and there has to be some sort of, you know, um, I guess, human element to Draymond's punishment being is that um, I think Kyrie just, you know, the trash talk banter between fans and whatnot is different than, you know, Draymond Green maybe had a more legitimate, if if anything, reason to be upset or frustrated with the fans' response uh, and to voice it in that way. And, again, Draymond wasn't on the court. You know, it wasn't like he was in the game, actively on the court, the center of attention. I don't even know if there's video footage of it. I, I haven't seen it yet. Maybe there is of Draymond there flipping is. the bird to the fans. Yeah, so it's, it, I think that those kind of little nuances make it different, and I wouldn't be surprised if the penalty was less because of that. But, again, the NBA may have to, um, just by letter of the law, dole out the same punishment, which I, in this instance, I think will be unfortunate because I don't think Draymond deserves the same as, as, you know, Kyrie repeatedly throwing, flipping the bird to fans while on the court, while participating in the action, um, engaging in fans in that way. I don't, I don't think that it should be the same situation there with Draymond. Let's go back to where we started with uh, a quick draft mention. What do you make of the Raiders drafting two running backs? This is on the heels of not picking up Josh Jacobs, fifth-year option. By the way, along with Zamir White in the draft and Britton Brown today, they just signed, and I know you'll know this name because you saw him up close, uh, Sincere McCormick from UTSA. They just signed him a smaller back. So what do you think the Raiders are doing here at running back? I think they are establishing that they don't value the running back position <laughs> as much as other people well, may sir, have in Certainly the past. not as much as John Gruden did because he <laughs> no, loved no, running backs. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, they're looking for quality from the running back position. Obviously, I think the names that you mentioned, having seen Sincere McCormick, Josh Jacobs, not getting extended but still being a part of the fold, I think they think quality is important at running back, but they're not going to jump the gun and overplay, overpay anybody. Ezekiel <laughs> Elliott. Um, for at the running back position. Um, so I, I think that's the, the tone that they've established with that running back room, and they're going to do it running back by committee, understanding that the, the way they plan to use their running backs in their offense, it's going to be important to have a, a hefty stable of capable guys to kind of do the job. And I think if you look at it, a lot of the, the, the build of these guys, they can do similar things, right? I mean, 
uh, when we talk about Sincere McCormick and Josh Jacobs, I, I think there's similarities to their bruising style of running um, and a, a physical style of running. I think that bodes well to have a, 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 a powerful running game, a forceful running game that's not, you know, about uh, shadow and, and, and deception, but more about, hey, physicality, we're going to run right through you um, to complement what should be a very potent passing attack with the additions they made in the offseason of Devontae Adams, obviously. So I think that is, I think you guys have been saying it, the Patriot West yes. uh, coming out here with with the, with the Raiders. And I, I don't see how you could be upset about that. It's a winning formula, and, you know, it worked in, in New England. Now let's see if the defense can come along and, and be as supportive as the Patriot way um, over in, in the Northeast. If that can make a way to the desert, and it's obviously going to be necessary, but um, I think that's just what we're seeing. We're seeing the Patriot way translating into Las Vegas, and we'll see if Derek Carr and the rest of the crew can can make it work. Yeah, Raiders management and coaching ain't here to be friendly to fantasy football owners. So there's not <laughs> no, there won't so, be a bell cow that you get to start and you know is going to get 20 carries. Absolutely not. Don't don't even. I would just say stay away from <laughs> yes. in your fantasy drafts. My advice to you: stay away from Raiders running backs. That's they are not going to be productive consistently. That's that's what you can count on. All right, Caleb. Good job, buddy. All right, guys. Appreciate it. Have a good one. There he is. Caleb Herring, the former quarterback at UNLV. He's on the broadcast. He is the analyst for UNLV football and radio. Also one of the co-hosts of the Marcus Arroyo radio show. Um, I don't know. I don't know that we've mentioned this on the show. I thought it was interesting from a running back standpoint what the Chargers did. So last year, the guy got called kind of amateurish, greedy. You know, over the top going for it on fourth downs, Brandon mm-hmm. Staley. Mm-hmm. And my counter to what he did and a lack of success at times, I think it was a lack of execution and also poor play calling. Uh, there were multiple times where instead of going with, I think your best weapon on a fourth and short is actually just a pitch and catch to either Keenan Allen or Mike Williams. I think Eckler is awesome. But Austin Eckler in a run situation in a goal line situation, you know what I mean? Like a fourth and one or fourth and two, jamming it up the middle with Eckler at 5'9 and whatever, 210, that ain't the way to go. Mm-hmm. And they got stuffed a lot. They drafted two running backs. They got the spiller kid at Texas A&M who's 6'215. And, and I don't know if you noticed, but they drafted a kid out of Purdue named Xander Horvath who was 6'3 and 230. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if either guy is going to make the team. Their backup running backs have just been okay. Like Josh Kelly really hasn't worked out at UCLA. But that was one of the first things I thought of when I saw that running back haul. Yeah. Like, these guys are big. Now it takes some, you know, some stones to throw them on the table and go fourth and short. Here's the rookie from Purdue. But that was one of the first things that jumped into my head. If you're going to go for it on short and you're going to run the ball, you better get some big freaking running backs. Join the conversation on Twitter at Cofield & Co. It's Cofield & Company's eye on sports gambling. I'm going to kill your bookmaker. I'm going to rip his throat out. I will step on his throat until the man chokes. Let me tell you how. Winners, 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 winners. Free, 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 free. All right, so what do you think of the Draymond Green stuff? Giving the finger, also uh, getting knocked around, got elbowed in the face by Xavier Tillman. I think that entire series is getting physical, first I love of it. all. Um, I love it. And you know I, why I love it? You know why I love it? Because this is what Draymond Green wants. This is what he wants. He wants to do this all year long and being an intim- you know, be an intimidator. Yeah. And I think he operates like no one's ever going to come back at him. Like, bro, have you watched the Memphis Grizzlies? No. Ja is little. Do you see the rest of the guys they put on the floor? 
And Dylan Brooks is like an NFL linebacker now. Former Finley prep guy. Yeah. What, what is he, 6'5", 235? Tillman's a friggin' brute. They got big guys. Hey, brah, you want to, you wanna, you know, the other night when he got ejected, everyone's like, oh, bull crap. He collared a guy on the way up, was dragging him to the ground, and then realized, oh, crap, this is going to look bad. And then he puts his hands down at the end. Everyone's like, oh, he tried to help him. Yeah, but his action of in the air collaring him, that's what got it started. Mm. And, and you know what? What, uh, what Brooks did is a common foul. Unfortunately, GP2 fell the wrong way, jacked up his elbow. But, hey, you want to light the flame and get all physical, let's go. This is Let's go, Draymond. People want to go and back then, to the then, old I'm school. I'm sorry, let me finish up here. Yeah. And then Draymond afterwards, like, oh, I can't believe, I can't believe they're, you know, they're cheering that a guy might have a concussion. When have you ever cared, Draymond, about the opposition? He has. But in certain actions, like, dude, when you're in the zone, yeah, that's, you don't care. Yeah, that's, you, you, you freaking you broke uh Marcus Chris's hand. By freaking kicking him, and then you go, you know, we always call him Dr. Dre because we're mocking on him. Doctor of Kinesiology, because he's like, oh, there's you know, natural body movement, really. When mm. you kicked Steven Adams in the nuts. Yeah. Did you care? When you broke the kid's hand, did you care? Like, bro, you've been dealing it. It's gonna come back. Sorry. This reminds me of the series. A lot of people do, you know, from our day, our era. They want to think about Detroit Bad Boys, but it's it that was always one sided. They were the rough and tumble. But the series in which New York was not going to back down against Chicago, and there were different participants in different altercations, if you will. And um, I know I brought this up on the show, but one of my favorite videos, uh, like Michael Jordan retrospective videos, is is airtime, and it talks about that series. In that he finally had to step up to the bully because they were just pushing. You remember when they just molested uh, Scottie Pippen under the basket driving baseline? There, that's a that's that's a notorious highlight. But one of my favorite is where Greg Anthony sets the screen and drops Jordan, and he gets up right. And I, every time I see that highlight, I say, huh? "Doing it for the ranch, baby, North Las Vegas." But there's a there's a there's a great team where two bald heads <laughs> come together and Xavier McDaniel, McDaniel and huh? Michael Jordan and talking smack. And that's what this series reminds me of. I'm fine with it. I don't want to see guys get seriously hurt. No, but, but go you ahead. cannot let the opposition get so physical that you wilt. Yeah, it's, you it's, have to fire back, and there has to be a little intimidation. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if you say it. But I think you make it clear. Draymond, if you want to play this way, then, dude, I hope you play 48 minutes. Because when you're not out there and Steph is, be careful. If you want to you play. Know, if Jordan Poole happens to go down hard, oh, well. Sorry. If you want to play Venice Beach ball, you want to play Rucker Park ball, mm. you want to play street ball, let's go. Now, now that said, I, John Morant's going to get something soon. Not that he's been an instigator, but John Morant's game is predicated on getting into the lane. He's going to get hammered. And it's the job of the officials to keep it under the control. Uh, under control. It's the job of the NBA. Um, and, you know, on the on the double bird thing by Draymond, I mean, he probably deserves more than Kyrie got. I don't agree with you guys. It's an accumulation of issues with him. And he outright said, I don't care. I'll do it again. They deserve it. Let me okay, ask you well, this. then, you know, open your wallet. Let me ask Let's you go. this to, 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 to your point about John Morant. So we see in hockey all the time, right? They, they obviously, they, they, they allow them to fight until they hit the ice, and then they break it up, um, and then they get a five-minute. But let me ask you this. 
there's somewhat of an unwritten rule that the scores, the stars, they don't get mixed up in it. Those are the ones that are protected. You think that maybe if it's going to become a rough, that it's somewhat, okay, look, you don't touch Steph Curry. You don't touch Ja Moran. You don't touch the guys that aren't instigating. No. <laughs> no, I don't. Go hard. I know, because one, one team's going to make that step and go after one of the key guys, and then, oh, well, why didn't we do that? You should have. I'm not saying be dirty, but you got to send messages, and you certainly have to retaliate, respond, if the other team's going to get you know, that nasty. And Draymond does it. So this is what you get. Uh, coming up, 5 o'clock hour, we'll get into the NFL announcing the international games. Raiders nowhere on the schedule in Mexico or in Europe. That's awesome.